This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This week is a reaction to episode four. Welcome to Invisible Tears. I'm Amanda, co-host of Invisible Tears. And today I am here with our host, Jane, and our other co-host, Drew. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. How are you doing? Doing good. I am wonderful. Living the dream. Woohoo! Aren't we all? Yeah. So we have a reaction episode today, guys. Episode four of Dark Valley. There's a lot to unpack with this episode. Sure is. Why don't we have Drew start? Because I know he's gonna, he's got a lot to say about this one. I do. I actually do have quite a bit to uh, talk about today. Um, Jane, when you pulled up to the vending machine at Camarlo's, were both of your front windows down in your car? I know my driver's side was. I don't remember if my passenger was. Okay. And then when did you notice the other car pulling into the parking lot? What was it that grabbed your attention about that? Um, I think I was, I had already bought my soda, so I was turned around, getting ready to walk back to my car, and that's when he pulled into the driver's side. 
I was outside my car when he actually pulled in. Okay. Were the windows down in his vehicle? I believe his driver's side was. Do you remember hearing the radio at all? No. Okay, so it was silent even after the attack when he drove away? Do you recall hearing anything? Yeah, I don't recall hearing a radio or anything, no. Okay. I know where he's going with this. It was interesting with the... uh when Jen brought up the request for bad to the bone, it just sort of did get me thinking like, did you recall hearing a radio station going on or was it just silence and the only thing you heard was the engine of his car? Knowing how quiet it was, I was just wondering if, yeah, you had heard anything in the background. I don't believe so. I, I don't believe, I think it was really quiet. Okay. I'm trying to think, I don't even think I had my radio turned up. I think I had my radio turned down too. I don't remember his radio being on at all. Okay. Yeah, now Jen's snippet at the beginning of this episode with saying that there was an anonymous caller who repeatedly requested Bat to the Bone in 1984 on the station 94.7 FM. I just sort of sat there and said, yes, if you listen to the words, okay, this is this is kind of creepy if you're making that correlation or connection. But the other piece of me was like, how on earth did Jen find this out? Yeah, that had been floating around for a few years now. Gotcha. So it was a rumor. It was. Well, rumors aren't always true. So I do believe that people had noticed that quite a bit back in the 80s. That's interesting. It is interesting because I would like to know more like when were these requests put in? Were they put in right after a person went missing or be just before one of them went missing? It would be interesting to know what was the timeline of those requests. Probably something we'll never be able to find out, but... Yeah, I agree. Next point, it was interesting that Jen was able to find out that so far with all the victims that she's discussed that they have either been very hippie-ish or a nurse. And Jane, at the time of your attack, that would almost be on a, like a, a nurse's schedule. A single woman driving home at midnight wouldn't be out of the norm for a nurse. As far as women that might might be not caught off guard by somebody coming up to them. You would think either a hippie, you know, fun-loving, free spirit, or a nurse who would definitely be apt to help somebody in distress if need be. Yeah, I have so many opinions on that. I was going to say, do you think those are just circumstances that happen to... I do. I still believe that every single one of them were a victim of opportunity versus he was looking for someone that worked in a certain field or because if you turn around and you look, he would have to do a lot of stalking in order to find these nurses and then do a lot of stalking to find victim of opportunities with these nurses. If they were coming and going from work or they were in the vicinity of the hospitals or the medical facilities, I would say, okay, yeah, he's targeting nurses. The only one that really came from work from working at the hospital was Ellen. Now, Barbara Agnew was coming from skiing. She didn't leave a hospital setting. And Bernice was hitchhiking, walking and hitchhiking. So she wasn't leaving or going to work. So I really, I think it was coincidences, maybe more victim of opportunity than really looking at what they were doing for work. Yeah, because Ellen's sister mentioned that she believed that she had gone home and changed before talking to her other sister on the payphone. So wouldn't have been coming directly from the hospital, but would have come different direction or whatnot. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I feel. So the Kellyville resident, I know we talked about him a little bit last reaction episode, but it was interesting to hear a little bit more of a deep dive and that 
even John Philpin doesn't believe he's involved, but just that he does have a mental illness or handicap that made him awkward with the different residents. And, you know, we kind of broached the subject about possibly having Asperger's, which looking at what he had up for signs at his house, you can kind of say, yeah, that's a little bit on the spectrum as far as not really sure how to interact with other people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can see why people would suspect him. I mean, obviously, he's he's put a target on his back for suspicion. So I can really totally understand the community really suspecting him and why he would be a suspect, a person of interest. But if you really look at his lifestyle and him, I mean, serial killers don't put a target on themselves and do all these things to make people suspect them of being a serial killer. They're more behind the scenes, more quiet, try not to be so noticeable. And uh, he definitely made himself noticeable. (laughs) So I see why people would suspect him. But yet, if you really think about what it takes to abduct somebody and to kill them and to dispose of their body, that is a lot of planning and that is a lot of structure. And I don't believe he had that. It was also interesting that the community, although they suspected him or thought that he was creepy, none of them actually came out and really give his real name. They understand what that would actually do to him. And yet it's extremely difficult to find his actual real name. I mean, I remember through the message boards talking with some uh, Kellyville residents and they wouldn't even, they were like, I, I don't feel comfortable giving his real name though. I think John Philbin, he helped explain the reason why that is when he was talking with Jen and then again, you know, off the record and then off mic when he was talking with her. I think it was a matter of protection. I trust his opinion when he says that he does not believe that somebody has the mental capacity to be able to do any of this. I can sort of read between the lines with him and understand what that means. So it's really just a matter of protection for this individual, even though it seemed like locally it was easy for everyone to point the finger at him. Yeah, he was investigated and obviously cleared. I don't think he's no longer a suspect in the authorities' eyes. Right. Probably still the community, obviously, because these cases are still unsolved. So obviously they don't have any other person of interest, so they would still keep him as a person of interest. But I I believe he was cleared. Talking about the authorities, it's interesting how Ellen's case has that sexual assault tag to it. And I remember that caught us off guard when we were doing our deep dive and almost made us go, should she even be included if there truly was a sexual assault aspect to her case? Because there never was one with any of the other cases. Yeah, during our research, we were never able to find why sexual assault was added to her crime. So really for John to kind of give a little bit more clarity onto that as to it was just that there were no clothes found around her body. It was really interesting to hear his take where he was taken back the fact that the authorities actually had labeled that and he had never heard anything about it. Right. He was like, there's no proof. It's such a leap. Yeah. Yeah. It really is to just suspect that because there was no clothing around. I don't agree with that. There is no proof. I'm glad you brought the clothes up. I am extremely curious on where her clothes are. Did an animal run away with them? All they found were skeleton of her, I believe. Jane, when you went to the area that her body was found, how high were the banks that she was on versus the water level of the river? Pretty high. Okay. You had to go down. 
like at least four or five, if not more steps to get to the river. But we don't know how much the river ran back in the 80s either. You know, the river could have been higher. So when you guys were talking about your trip to the river, I would definitely want to ask as far as how high the banks were to where the body was located, because I was able to actually find two articles, one from 1981 and one from 1984, that talk about the Sugar River uh, flooding into Claremont and into the Borgard village area from a deep winter thaw that had ice jams that actually caused the uh, water level to rise five to six feet above the banks. And in one case, 1981, there was over 100 homes that had to be evacuated. Uh, I think it was like a dozen cars that were underwater for 24 hours, and it took some time to actually get that cleared up. So that actually happened in February of 1981, which is before the first body was laid along the Sugar River. Now, the next flooding happened in February of 1984, that same water crest four to five feet above the normal level. And there was about 50 homes that had to be evacuated, 30 cars that were uh, damaged. And it wasn't just water, it was ice that was flooding into the town. And that was in 1984. But at that time, all the bodies that were killed beforehand had already been discovered. And then the following murder didn't happen until after that flooding. So it was just one of those, if it was a resident of that area, within a four-year period, he saw the Sugar River flood drastically enough to wash away a lot of stuff. So would that have truly been almost like a quote-unquote perfect dumping ground, knowing that every couple of years an ice jam's going to come by and wash away everything? At the time of Ellen's, between when she disappeared and when her body was found, was there some flooding that may have taken away her clothing? Because if she was stabbed, her clothes would have been really tattered and how easy they would have been to wash away. But it might not have been as significant a flood to actually write about it. So it'd be interesting if there's any uh, listeners that are from right around that area during the 19. 19- 80s definitely let us know how bad was this flooding was it a common occurrence or were those true outliers but the timing of when those did happen and it definitely said like the the claremont area borgard village was the one that was definitely mentioned um and i don't know where that actually stands in comparison to where these bodies were found but i was able to find that the sugar river did actually have some significant flooding during that time period what else might have been washed away during those storms Yeah. Because it did say that the body, Ellen's body, was partially covered by dirt. Yeah, partially buried. Yeah. Now, was that from somebody partially burying her or from Mother Nature partially burying her? See, and that's what I really questioned, too. Was there water coming up and bringing mud over her or... Did he partially bury her? Did he fully bury her? And the water washed away some of the dirt where her remains were found. If a river would come up that high and wash away some of that, you would think they would have washed away a lot of her remains too. But it doesn't seem like it did. And that would be interesting. Yeah. How decomposed was the body at the time? Did it get caught up on something? Because with it being an ice jam, that flow is definitely different than a normal heavy rainstorm type of flooding. At least I would envision that. But that's why it'd be great if there was a listener out there that actually can recall what happened during that time period. Absolutely. I mean, if she didn't have any clothes, why would he take her clothes? I believe she would have been the first one that had no clothing. So why would he take her clothes? Where is her clothes now? You know, this is some of the problems that people could possibly have answers to if the authorities were more upfront about things. 
they could have put in there, she was wearing this, this, and this, and we're looking for her clothing. Maybe you're a fisherman down the stream, you know, down the river, and may have seen some clothing washed up. And if you have, you know, bring it to us. And, you know, it might have been her clothing. Who knows? Maybe somebody found her clothing down the river and didn't think anything of it. And had the authorities put something like that in the paper, been forthcoming with that kind of stuff, it would have helped. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our episode. The last big topic, at least from my perspective for this episode, was the talking points around Ellen in the drive-up payphone. Definitely a lot of information was brought forward, such as there was actually no mention of a car driving by. We had all assumed or had read the reports that it was a car that was seen driving by at least twice that caused her to get nervous and want her to start her car. Now, the other thing is there's no mention of what Ellen was driving at the time. Do you know what she was driving for a vehicle? It was an older Chevelle, two-door Chevelle. I think they said late 60s, 68, 69 Chevelle, somewhere around there. Because the mention of how she was talking with her sister felt uneasy and said, hold on, I have to start my car. The part that I'm hanging up on is, would you say that if you were sitting in the driver's seat or would you just start your car? You wouldn't have to put down the receiver or anything. So possibly what she pulled up, you know, opposite direction, it was just chilling in the, you know, the back seat or the passenger side, or was she just sitting on the hood of the car talking to her? You know, that comment right there is always stuck with me. For some reason, I can't picture her being in the car if she had to start her car and had to mention it. I think she was outside the car. That's my opinion, solely my opinion. I believe she had pulled up probably with the driver's side door parallel to the phone where she got out of the car. And I could almost picture her leaning against the car talking on the phone. I could be wrong about that, but that's the only other explanation I could find where she said, hold on, I got to start my car. Because Jen mentioned where if the driver's side was along the payphone, the door wouldn't have been a be able to be opened for her to get abducted. But I don't know if everything lines up with the fact that the driver's side was right next to the payphone. But it could have been far enough away where she could open her door and close it and then lean up against the car and talk on the phone. Ellen's sister, Carrie, made a couple of pretty good points, too, mentioning that even during the winter, she would drive with her windows down because she didn't like to be inside. Like she she was just like a super outdoorsy person. So with where both of you guys are going with the whole, I don't think that she would sit in her car for two hours and actually talk on the phone, especially since she said she needed to start her car. It would probably make more sense that number one, all of her windows were down even when she pulled up. And number two, if she had the option to not be in her car, she probably wasn't. Yeah. And that's what I say too. The possibility of this person coming through the the passenger door to grab her. Now, back then those doors didn't automatically lock. 
they were manual locks or power locks on the door. But when you started your car or shut off your car, the doors didn't just automatically lock or unlock. So I kind of question if her passenger side door was unlocked or the window being down enough to unlock the door to get in. Even if her car was pulled up to this drive through payphone and the driver's side was towards the payphone, they still could have got in by the passenger side, especially if her windows were down, in my opinion. We'll probably never know, but it would be interesting to know, and this would definitely piece everything together, what made her nervous, you know, or what made her feel like she had to start her car before she said goodbye to her sister. That's a big question right there. Someone, something. You know, it is very interesting to hear Ellen's sister talking about how it still affected her today, what happened to her. Um, when she t- tells the story about her daughter breaking down the vehicle, you can tell there's still so much apprehension there. And that's difficult to hear, knowing that it's affected their entire lives. It always will be there. And I so related to that. I was the same way. I would help anybody. I would, you know, feel no fear. I guess it was trusted people. And, you know, after my attack, that stopped. And as soon as she started talking about her daughter, I so related to that. Like at night when I drove, I was like, I went from point A to point B and no in between where before my attack I did. And I have to share a story that came to me as soon as I heard her sister, Carrie, talk about her daughter. It was probably 10 years after my attack. I was working um third shift, 11 to seven shift. And I was at work one night, just got to work. One of the girls got there. She was a little little late. And she was telling us how she picked up this hitchhiker and brought this guy to the other side of Keene and then came to work. That's why she was a minute or two late. I just looked at her like, you know, here she is driving by herself, 10 o'clock at night, and she's picking up hitchhikers. And I'm like, you pick up hitchhikers at 10 o'clock at night? And she looked at me and she's like, well, don't you? She just looked at me and I was like, I don't pick up hitchhikers. And her response was, oh, you're them kind of people. You're those kind of people. And I was like, those kind of people. And then it was like, okay, this woman has obviously never experienced anything traumatic in her life or her safety has never been questioned before in her life because I think had it been she would not be picking up hitchhikers at 10 o'clock at night I was kind of offended by it but yeah I had to sit back and, and understand okay like Carrie said unless you go through or know someone or have experienced any kind of danger situation like this you would not understand why or why not why people would be more cautious of their surroundings like myself to be honest I've probably picked up one hitchhiker before my attack after my attack the thought never even crossed my mind to pick up a hitchhiker it was like an automatic and oh no drive by would not so yeah I mean I totally get what Carrie said it changes you forever once you experience that type of incidents Like, I'm super, super cautious with Jessica and Cheyenne. If 
Jessica takes a walk down the road or goes somewhere by herself, a walk around the block or goes down to get Cheyenne off the bus, she carries a can of mace. And we try to instill in Cheyenne, you don't know a vehicle, you don't go near it. Stranger, they're not always safe. That's what happens when you experience something like this. You're more heightened with alerts. I hate that I have to feel and be this way because I am a kind person. I would do anything for anybody, but I'm so cautious today. Yeah, the interesting piece of that story that I can't help but think of too with your coworker, it almost sounds like she passed judgment like so quickly, almost being like, oh, you're that type of person that like wouldn't help someone or wouldn't, or oh, you're just paranoid. It would be interesting if she actually knew what happened to you. And that in turn may actually change her reaction or what she would actually do. Just almost being like shocked in that situation. Yeah. I wonder. Be careful passing judgment because you just don't know their story. Agreed. So it was great to hear Jen give a breakdown on how major crime and homicides is handled in the state of New Hampshire versus elsewhere and that the attorney generals are the ones that handle all that. So I was curious. I was like, how many attorney generals have there been? So Jane, just since your attack, there have been 10 different attorney generals in 13 since the first attack. Everyone really is just a political position that they hold for three to maybe five years. So, wow. So do you think that's why nothing is happening? Because if all of this is on their plate and they know that they're only going to be there for a couple of years, do they want to get invested in getting this stuff solved? Or is it just a I'll just wait for the next person to come along. I've got to tackle the opioid crisis or the homeless crisis or making sure that the town streets look good. Like Drew, in my opinion, I don't believe that any of these cases should be in the AG office. I believe we have a cold case unit for a reason. They're the ones that should be overlooking all these cases. Them and the state police. Working with the state police. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why do... They feel like the AG office needs to overlook all these cases. I don't understand it. Obviously, they come in, they come and go. So they're not familiar with these cases. They don't have enough time to be familiar with these cases. Yeah, if there's a major case that's recently going on in the state or whatever, okay, pass that on to the AG office and have them overview it, you know, look over it. But Why does the AG have all these cases every year, year after year after year after year? They shouldn't. They absolutely should not. That's the frustrating part about it. Must be some of them have been reelected. Drew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the AGs are actually appointed by the governor. Yeah, when we're looking at the current one, that's what it's what sounded like. So, well, that's even more interesting. Maybe we ought to start talking to the governor and start getting some real answers from him. And I would love to address a few things with him now. Drew, did you have any other questions? 
Uh, no more questions or comments. It was another great episode. Jen's doing a phenomenal job. I absolutely love it. Amazing. I look forward to every episode each week. This episode to me, there was so much to unpack. Like I told you guys, like at the beginning, there was so much really, really good information in this episode. I was really glad that Jen was able to get Ellen's sister, Carrie, on the phone and speak with her a little bit. It was great hearing how she grew up in, you know, small town, upstate New York, super well-educated, outdoorsy person, was a hippie. She was artistic. She was a musician. Just those real personable pieces. It was great to hear. She also helped outline how much of a private person she was with her comment about how, well, she may have been engaged and I may just not have known she was a private person, like even her sister saying that. So it makes sense about how private she was and, and what we've basically not been able to find about her. And also that she verified that she did not have a phone in her home. So it totally makes sense. I, I think all of us at some point were like, at that time of night, why on earth would somebody be on a payphone for two hours? Like, does that really make sense? You know, why would somebody do that? But, but now it does. If she refused to have a phone in her place, it makes sense why she would be having a two hour long conversation, you know, with her sister on the phone that it sounds like she was super close with. The more I get to know these girls, Jen does an amazing job highlighting these women and really getting you to to know them and know who they were and I mean Ellen was amazing she was an artist and um, she loved music and uh, outdoorsy like her sister said she was very much hippie and she sounded so cool like I would love to have known her or hung out with her she just seemed like a really amazing person. Jen does an amazing job sharing with people how amazing these women were, that they weren't just victims. It makes it so much more real what happened to these women and they were just living their lives. And they had so much to live for. Ellen's family sounds amazing. She was very much loved and she's very much missed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I love the way Janet is portraying these women as human beings and real people, it just saddens me because they were just living their lives and they had amazing lives. Uh, you know, Ellen, a nurse, and she loved music and art and hiking and very athletic and caring and nice. And as her sister said, you know, she would have helped anybody. You know, she can totally picture Ellen instead of getting physical with this guy. She was more apt to talk him down and trying to talk to him and, and try to get herself out of this situation. I immediately fought where you kind of wonder, you know, did these girls fight at first or did they try to talk him down? Did they try to say, hey, you know, you don't have to do this? Um, you know, I have a family or I have a daughter, I have a, you know, I have children or whatever. It just shows what kind of a person she, she was. These women aren't just characters in, in this story. They were real people. They had family and they had friends and they had coworkers and a lot of people that cared about them and so sad that their lives were taken like they were. Yeah. Do you believe that was Ellen in butterfly form? that came to you and Jen? Absolutely. I have no doubt about it. Yeah. If you could have been there, I could have experienced it. It was crazy. 
It was beautiful. It truly, truly was a beautiful moment for me. I could tell by the audio that was captured. I could hear the emotion in both your and Jen's voice. You guys were just in awe. It was clear. At first we were excited. I was like, oh my God, look at the butterfly. Because Jen knew I have talked about butterflies before. And then it was just so beautiful to watch it just fly around me. It was just circling me. It was was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. And then it came back to you at Bernice's grave. Yeah. Well, by the time I left that site where uh, we believe Ellen was found, it kind of gave me some peace. And then we got to Bernice's grave site and yeah. All of a sudden, there's a butterfly flying around. As angry as I was about that whole situation with the grave marker and all that, with that butterfly flying around, that also gave me some peace by the time I left. Yeah, it was beautiful. That's good. And yeah, as you can see from the, uh, the logo, we had to make sure that there was a butterfly in the Invisible Tears logo. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Butterflies over the years have really been me and jessica's thing and and now cheyenne's thing for us it represents new life it's growth in life i've had a lot of growth over the years and jessica has had a lot of growth over the years so that's just always been our symbol it just represents so much of our lives and now cheyenne's life too Because, you know, because I survived, Jessica survived, and because Jessica survived, Cheyenne, she's the most beautiful butterfly of us all, you know. It just represents so much of our lives. I love that. That's beautiful. I think there's only one piece, or at least one piece that I actually had on my radar that we haven't talked about yet, our behind-the-scenes experience on Cat Hole Hill Road. Oh, I love that Jen actually put clips in there. And I love that she actually put the one in there where you could hear the gunshot and you could hear how loud it was. There was so much more audio of us and what we were talking about as we were driving down this road. So many more signs. I mean, she explained it fantastic in the episode. I was expecting us to actually get shot at. I was. I was expecting us to be approached by someone. (laughs) There's no exaggeration in that video on how uncomfortable we were. It was like almost immediate as we got onto that road. I felt as if, okay, I don't think we should be here. And then you guys started uh, talking about your concerns and how you guys were feeling. And um, I mean, just to put it into perspective, I had one of Jen's cameras at the time. I refused to even actually get out of the car or pop up out of her um, sunroof because I knew that there were cameras along that because it said, smile, you're on camera. I actually even refused to get out of the car and actually do that. But as Jen jumps out with like her phone to just take a quick, you know, snippet of a video because, because of her documentarian mind, you know, her investigative mind, I was like, no, I'm no, I'm not getting out of the car. Actually. Nope. She wasn't out of the car for very long. No, she was only out of the car for probably about 20 seconds, maybe. And then the second she heard that gunshot and heard how close it was, well, you can hear on the audio. It's it's clear. That was a shotgun. If you had seen those signs, these aluminum signs, metal signs, and then you see them just riddled with gunshot holes. I, I'm not talking one, two, three. I'm talking, covered the whole sign. There was a lot of gunshot holes in these signs. It was creepy 
I felt like we were being watched the second we got on that road, like immediately, whether it was through the cameras that we really didn't see around or somebody was literally sitting there watching us. We kind of laughed about it after because we're freaking ourselves out. <laughs> we, I remember us saying that we're, we're just freaking ourselves out because the signs were creepy and, you know. But holy shit, you guys actually did get a warning shot. <laughs> we did. Yeah. Yeah. There was no exaggeration with that part of that video at all. I can't imagine how people felt when they were listening to it. That is how we felt. Like, oh shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when we heard the gunshot, we were like, oh shit. And this is, this wasn't a smooth road. This road had big ass holes in the road, ruts. And uh, I think we were about airborne as Jen was driving out of there. <laughs> Jen's suspension still hasn't forgiven us for how quickly we, <laughs> we exited that road. <laughs> like off-roading. Off-roading big time. But Jen is doing an amazing job. I'm so proud of her. The way she's talking about these women and sharing information about these women is just, she's doing it with so much compassion, so much class. And uh, I, I can't thank her enough because that's that's what we wanted. That's what I wanted. I wanted it to be about them. I wanted to be people to know about these victims, these women. I want their families to know. As far as I'm concerned, they'll never be forgotten. They'll never be forgotten as long as I live. You know, we may not solve these cases, but boy, we're learning a lot about these women that were so brutally taken away by a monster that just had no regard for life. But we're not gonna talk about him. This is about them. We're giving them a voice, not him. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.